Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. The next exercise is the third Satipatthana, contemplation of mind, Chitanupassana. Mind here is Chitta in Pali, Chitta like body or self, is something we generally presume exists. And when the word chitta is used, it is generally treated as a fixed thing, even in the Dharma. It is something that can be purified by removing defilements from it. Chitta represents problems for the monk. It is difficult to guard, control, to look after, It can be disposed to anger or to pride or to lust. This is in contrast to cognizance, for instance, vijnana, which is always an insubstantial, impermanent cognitive event that comes and goes in time, followed by another instance and another instance. Sometimes we hear that cognizance is a thing that we can take into our next life, but that is a later teaching not how the Buddha taught. Chitta, mind, can be carried from one life to another, but vijnana, cognizance, cannot. A whole chapter of the Dhammapada is devoted to the mind, chitta, and gives a sense of how the mind is regarded. Here are some of the verses. Just as a fletcher straightens an arrow shaft, even so the discerning man straightens his mind, so fickle and unsteady, so difficult to guard. As a fish, when pulled out of water and cast on land, throbs and quivers, even so is this mind agitated. Hence, should one abandon the realm of Mara. Wonderful indeed it is to subdue the mind, so difficult to subdue, ever swift and seizing whatever it desires. A tamed mind brings happiness. Wisdom never becomes perfect in one whose mind is not steadfast, who knows not the Dharma, and whose faith wavers. Whatever harm an enemy may do to an enemy or a hater to a hater, an ill-directed mind inflicts on oneself a greater harm. Neither mother, father, nor any other relative can do one greater good than one's own well-directed mind. We see that mind is often viewed as outside the self, something that can be directed or can do harm to oneself. But the body is like that too. Like body, chitta is often identified with the self because chitta is presumed to substantially exist and is often equated with the self. We would like, through internal analysis, to demonstrate that the evidence for its substantial existence is insufficient to justify the presumption. 
Here is a pop question for you. If the Buddha wants to deconstruct the mind along with the body, why does he himself refer to the mind as if it were a substantial thing that can be directed, tamed, and that can cause one benefit or harm? Although presumptions get us into trouble, concepts are useful, in fact necessary, even to teach the Dharma. This is why, in the internal analysis refrain, the formula is repeated over and over again, or else mindfulness that there is a body is simply established in him to the extent necessary for bare knowledge and mindfulness. We need points of reference for communication and thought. The trick is not to get trapped by the presumptions they get mixed up with. Although citta is translated as mind, it seems to include only part of what we might include in mind. It is usually used in referring to states or conditions of mind, roughly what mood are we in. It seems to exclude any cognitive mechanisms that might operate within mind or any process of meaning construction or presumption of the existence of objects out there. In fact, this is revealed in the description of the contemplation of mind. And how bhikkhus does a bhikkhu abide contemplating mind in mind? Here, a bhikkhu understands mind affected by lust as mind affected by lust, and mind unaffected by lust, as mind unaffected by lust. He understands mind affected by hate, as mind affected by hate, and mind unaffected by hate, as mind unaffected by hate. He understands mind affected by delusion, as mind affected by delusion, and mind unaffected by delusion, as mind unaffected by delusion. So far we have lust, hate, and delusion in their opposites, which we can also call renunciation, kindness, and wisdom. These are the familiar roots of unwholesome intentions and the opposing roots of wholesome intentions. Therefore, we are evaluating the mind in terms of ethical standards upheld in the Dharma. Each of these can come and go, but when present tends to dominate, that is, to characterize the mind as a whole. We say the mind is caught up in lust or anger or delusion at a given time. Awareness of these states is a primary guide to whether any actions we might be considering are beneficial or harmful to others. Other guides are whether or not we would violate precepts or what kinds of harmful or beneficial consequences we can foresee. Let's continue. He understands contracted mind as contracted mind and distracted mind as distracted mind. A contracted mind is on task, attentive, with continuity of attention, mindful. A distracted mind is the opposite. It is the monkey mind, with attention jumping from here to there. For purposes of Buddhist practice, the contracted mind is preferred. 
the distracted mind is inimical to Buddhist practice. In fact, right up front in the Satipatthana Sutta, we are told, He abides contemplating mind in mind, ardent, fully aware and mindful, having put away covetousness and grief for the world. Full awareness and mindfulness entails contraction, staying on task. Covetousness and grief for the world entails distraction. In fact, greed, hate, and delusion are basic sources of distraction, whereas renunciation, kindness, and wisdom tend towards contraction. The rest of the description that the Buddha offers of contemplation of mind is as follows. He He understands understands exalted mind as exalted mind and unexalted mind as unexalted mind. He understands surpassed mind as surpassed mind and unsurpassed mind as unsurpassed mind. He understands concentrated mind as concentrated mind and unconcentrated mind as unconcentrated mind. He understands liberated mind as liberated mind and unliberated mind as unliberated mind. For some of these terms, there seems to be little agreement among teachers as to what they mean, and I have no particular view. But a concentrated mind is the mind in samadhi or in jhana, serene and still. This is the meditative state that quickly arises as we practice satipatthana, when we have dispelled distractions. Again, an unconcentrated mind is normal for almost all people almost all of the time. This is the distinction one step beyond contracted and distracted. Liberated mind probably refers to the awakened mind. Alternatively, it could refer to the mind temporarily free from distractions or defilements, but this would be redundant since these are already covered in previous states. This is a good point to remind ourselves that our task in Satipatthana is simply observing or contemplating or examination. With mind, we come across a series of positive-negative dichotomies in which one element is dharmically wholesome, skillful, or indicative of progress in the path, whereas the other is the opposite. Yet our task in Satipatthana is not to prefer one over the other or to try to get rid of one and cultivate the other. It is simply to observe, contemplate, or examine dispassionately or detached in order to understand these parameters of the human mind. In terms of overall practice, we do want to develop one and discourage the other, but this is the task of right effort, not of right mindfulness. It is similar with suffering. The first task the Four Noble Truths give us is to understand suffering. Only with the Third Noble Truth do we try to get rid of it. Nevertheless, observing our mind objectively inspires us to remove the negative qualities through other practices. The Buddha provides a simile for this. 
And how is a bhikkhu skilled in the ways of his own mind? It is just as if a woman or a man, young, youthful, and fond of ornaments, would look at her or his own facial reflection in a clean, bright mirror or in a bowl of clear water. If they see any dust or blemish there, they will make an effort to remove it. But if they do not see any dust or blemish there, they will be glad about it, and their wish fulfilled. They will think, how fortunate that I'm clean. And so too, self-examination is very helpful for a bhikkhu to grow in wholesome qualities. If by such self-examination, a bhikkhu knows, I am often given to longing, given to ill will, overcome by dullness and drowsiness, restless, plagued by doubt, angry, defiled in mind, agitated in body, lazy and unconcentrated. He should put forth extraordinary desire, effort, zeal, enthusiasm, indefatigability, recollection, and full awareness to abandon those same bad, unwholesome qualities. Just as one whose clothes or head had caught fire would put forth extraordinary desire, effort, zeal, enthusiasm, indefatigability, mindfulness, and clear comprehension to extinguish the fire on his clothes or head, so too that bhikkhu should put forth extraordinary desire, effort, zeal, enthusiasm, indefatigability, mindfulness, and clear comprehension to abandon those same bad, unwholesome qualities. What is very interesting and extremely useful is that the mere contemplation of unwholesome states of mind by itself tends to make them disappear, at least temporarily, without additional effort. For instance, if we're sitting in meditation, contemplating the breath and anger arises, then the mind is not only manifesting hate, it is also distracted. It is unlikely that we will retain our attentiveness to the breath. No problem. We change the scope of our attentiveness to the anger itself rather than to the breath. This is a shift, at least temporarily, from body contemplation to mind contemplation. We should become adept in such shifts. Attending to anger, we examine how anger is constructed. How does it feel in the body? What does the mental energy of the anger feel like? But don't get caught up in the narration that generally accompanies anger. I should have. She shouldn't have. I'm going to get back. Ha ha. You'll quickly find that this leads to uncontrollable distraction. With attentiveness appropriately placed, soon we can't find the anger. We've revealed it as insubstantial. Then we can return to the breath. We haven't even disrupted our satipatthana practice. We've just changed its scope for a time very productively 
to a very important alternative aspect of experience. As I understand it, the continual application of this strategy is fundamental to the Mahasi method of Vipassana meditation. The Buddha describes what's going on here in a discourse outlining various methods for removing distractions. This is the fourth such method. If there still arise in him evil, unwholesome thoughts connected with greed, with hate, and with delusion, then he should give attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts. When he gives attention to stilling the thought formation of those thoughts, then any evil, unwholesome thoughts connected with desire, with hate, and with delusion are abandoned in him and subside. With the abandoning of them, his mind becomes steadied internally, quieted, brought to singleness, and concentrated. As we examine anger, for instance, we see the evidence for the anger and therefore the constructed nature of the anger. The tightness in the chest, the blood in the face, a certain energy in the mind, and the anger is revealed as insubstantial. That is, we give attention to stilling of the thought formation. Notice that this is just like internal analysis. In fact, recall that we stilled the body formation when contemplating the breath, just as we still the thought formation here. The difference here is that we have no presumption that the anger is permanent or fixed, only that it is hugely substantial, even if for a short time to the extent of dictating to us, he made you angry, he is wrong, and you must get back at him. Examination quickly reveals its insubstantiality and the wisdom of not responding to its dictates. In summary, we find that the contemplation of mind brings a rich set of benefits to our practice aside from internal analysis of mind. As before, the description of mind contemplation is followed by the common refrain, In this way he abides contemplating mind in mind internally, or he abides contemplating mind in mind externally, or he abides contemplating mind in mind both internally and externally, and so on. Our evidence for mind in this exercise is a sequence of dominant mental states, each of which is temporary. As we examine these states, it becomes difficult to construct and then presume a permanent mind externally. This exercise is similar to the contemplation of posture, whereby the evidence for body is a sequence of poses. Next week, we will begin the series of contemplations of phenomena.